What is this behavior? Do you want it? You're dying for it. So welcome back, people, to another episode of What Is This Behavior, a podcast where three South Asians talk to other South Asians who are going against the grain and breaking old and tired and boring even stereotypes. Uh, this week, we've got a super exciting guest, Zinia Kumar, who is a published scientist researching colorism, a chartered ecologist, and uh, just for fun, a model as well. Um so yeah, a really amazing episode. Uh, we cover her journey, which you know um, incorporates so many different lines of work and how she navigated that um, and how it influenced her different, different work. Uh, we talk about fashion and representation, specifically within modeling and casting, uh, and then using your power and influence, which she has a lot of now, um, for good. Um, and then the meat and bread of the whole episode, we obviously co- cover colorism because we couldn't not ask her about that. Um, so yeah, it's an amazing episode, some really thought-provoking ideas, it's funny, it's insightful, um, it's fun. Let's get into it. What is this behavior? So Zinia, thank, thank you for coming on board and um, yeah, finding the time to kind of chat with us. As I said, I think we've got so many questions kind of blocked in on our group um evernote page so we're going to try and get through as much as possible but um and because you i guess you know your your background you float through so many different areas um i think the best place to start is just how what we kind of chatted about briefly yesterday so how you got into the line of work that you're doing now um and then I yeah. think i'm pretty sure ruben and almas are going to bombard you in between so let's see how we, <laughs> how, how we go <laughs> Okay, awesome. Do you want to start? Do you want me to start from like the beginning when I was like a conservation yeah, biologist? Yeah, or, like, yeah, yeah. That was straight no, into you... fashion stuff. Imagine that sentence no. right there. The beginning when I was a conservation biologist. I <laughs> know. Uh, where do, where are we that... ending? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, okay, so um, I so I'm from Australia and I'm South Asian and I basically was obsessed with David Attenborough since I was like five years old. So I was this like kid in Australia who was five and I had David Attenborough's accent. So um, <laughs> that was really Oh, funny. this is going to be fun for me. I'm going to dip in and out to what I believe his accent is. So just watch out. <laughs> so basically, I'd say, um, so when people would say plant in Australia, I'd be like plant. And so it was just like, you know, this five-year-old talking like this. So it was quite funny. Mm. Um <laughs> And I always just loved animals. So I um, ended up going to university and doing ecology. And um, I worked as a conservation biologist in Australia. So I worked in the Australian outback with water birds, little blue penguins, invertebrates, insects, and like all these creatures. And we'd be out in these remote locations for like a month, no showers. So you're using like wet wipes to like wash yourself. And like, you know, all these little deadly creatures are all around you. Like we'd see funnel web spiders and stuff like that daily. as you do. Yeah, as you do, because it's Australia. Um, and then after, as I was working out in the field, I got really allergic to eucalyptus trees, which is like the most common plant in Australia. So I'd come back, I'd always have a rash or like a rash on my face and I get really bad asthma. So I was like, okay, I'm going to die out here one day. So I'm going to have to like change like my field of interest. Yeah, so because I was allergic to trees. Um, so there was a project oh, running wow. in my lab 
Yeah, like conservation biologists allergic to trees, right? Um, <laughs> uh, and then I decided to change. There was all these different projects running in my lab at the time, so I was like, okay, maybe I can just like change into one of them. But most of them involved killing mice, so you had to like run these experiments where you, at the end of the day, had to kill the mice because ethics approvals and universities would have to kill them. And I didn't want to kill anything. So I ended up working on humans because with humans, you don't have to kill them after you're done with them. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, and so I worked what, what on... What type of experiments yeah. were you doing on the mice? Sorry, Zinnia. Like what yeah. What thing, what type of experiments were they? Unless so, this triggers trauma, this question. Oh, no, I, I never actually killed a single mouse. So I'm very happy. Okay. Um, it was kind of like... Uh, running them through particular kinds of stress experiments and then seeing the levels oh, of a particular hormone in their liver. So you'd be mm. taking out their liver, putting um, liquid nitrogen on the liver, like crushing it up and putting it in a machine. Oh, so, I mean, my gosh. yeah, it, and it was like some of them were like pregnant mice. And I was like, why, why kill the pregnant mice just to be like, is it necessary? Anyway, there's a lot of ethics issues there, so which I just couldn't handle. So um, I looked at human attraction so like why we look the way we do and why other people find that attractive so it's a field called human evolutionary biology human evolutionary psychology and i was running experiments looking at men's facial hair like which level of facial hair is considered <laughs> most attractive by men and yeah. women so we looked at things like um clean shaven faces five days of growth which we called light stubble heavy stubble like 15 days of growth and heavy heavy like a full beard. So that was two months of growth. And this was only for like European men because we actually couldn't get enough Asian men to come in to like uh, shave oh, wow. their beard after like two months. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah. It grows we... back in about an hour for us. Exactly. Though, <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. They'd be the perfect subject. They can just keep making money and it turning up every other day. <laughs> yeah, that is a hustle. You don't have to kill them. move on. Before you move on from this story, can I yeah. can I ask for some insights in regard to results? I'm just quite curious because I've I've got a beard going on, um, yeah. and if it's too long, I just look a bit scruffy. I look a bit like Roald Dahl's Mr. Twit. So I take it down, and I feel a little bit cleaner. Mm. Um, where on the scale, like, where's the attractiveness lie? So, I mean, this was a couple of years ago. So maybe when, um, I guess, beards are a little bit more mainstream. I don't know if they're still mainstream mm. now. But um, yeah. so what we found was basically overall, both men and women found other men with heavy stubble, regardless of the density of the hair or the length of growth at 15 days, most attractive. And we also oh, had this okay. really cool effect where you walk into a room and if you're the only one with a beard and everyone's clean shaven, the bearded guy suddenly becomes super attractive and vice versa. Yeah, so if you walk novelty. into a room full of, yeah, so it's novelty. It's called negative frequency dependent selection. So is what is rare attractive. And um, so I applied it to beards and there was an effect, which was really cool. And then we applied it to women and hair color and there was no effect. So if you're in a room full of brunettes and you're the only blonde, like it's not going to make a difference. Oh, wow. What intriguing results. So for me to increase my results of attraction, I need to go to <laughs> events where there's a whole heap of clean shaven men. Yes. And just, Base. just float around in the background doing some random stuff. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Ca sorry, carry on. I was just really, <laughs> no, I was just really nosy. Yeah. Um, 
And then, so after I did those kinds of studies, I was sort of like, um, okay, this is great, but I just feel like I'm judging people. Like, you know, I'm just objectively mm. judging them. And I also did an experiment on models, body shapes and stuff like that. So it was like um, body sizes in different clothing and stuff. And that was well before I became a model. So that was like quite interesting seeing it from that side of the perspective. But anyway, what ended up happening was I kind of finished these studies. I published them in research journals and... I was sort of like, hang on, I'm not really making a difference. I'm just kind of really judging people and making things worse. So um, I took some time out and I went traveling and I was um, a youth ambassador for the Department of Foreign Affairs under the Australian government. And I was teaching in Thailand at one of these really disadvantaged schools. It was so disadvantaged that it was actually not even state run. It was charity run. And the students in my class were... Um, from the local villages and some of them were actually really at high risk of human trafficking as well so it was quite it was quite rewarding I guess working with them but I remember in one of my classes it was a kindergarten class I had this girl she was really cute and she had like pigtails in her hair one day so she always wore a ponytail she came with pigtails and I said to myself I'm gonna like say something to her because she's always by herself in the corner so I went over and I said, I love your pigtails. And she just looked at me like no one had ever given her a compliment in her life. And her reply, I will just never forget, because this is kind of what really got me into colors and research is she said, I'm not beautiful because I'm not light skinned like the celebrities on TV. Wow. And this is a five-year-old. So where that is she getting the messages of a, beauty? Yeah. Was that a real penny drop moment for you? Yeah, it was because, you know, that, you know, I think our society is kind of like designed to question why does someone feel bad about themselves? But actually yeah. what made me question it straight away was actually what messages is she getting from society to think like this, mm. being so mm. young? Yeah, so... Yeah, sorry. So I was going to say, was that a defining moment for you? Yes, In regards it was. to working out what direction you wanted to actually take your purposeful work so it sort of started it and then because I was traveling through Asia as well I went through Hong Kong China India Singapore Malaysia and what I saw was kind I kind of took more notice of the ads after the little girl had said that and what I saw was like this market designed to promote light skin so, for example, when I went to India at the time, it was sort of like they were using a lot of Russian models with their hair dyed black with a tikka and a sari uh, to the point wow. where the local people couldn't even it's tell what It's pretty much it like that, isn't it? Yeah, well, I feel like it's so like that bridal. Year ago. Yeah. yeah. So it's just nuts how it, colorism or lighter skin is just... Um, it's just everywhere. I think there's somewhere somewhere... I'll find the stat while we carry on talking, but um, blonde people are really rare in this world, but advertising has you thinking that blonde people are... Oh, really? Are, yeah. Are, in, t- um, in terms of, like, world population, yeah. 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 Not in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in Sweden. <laughs> yeah. But but you know what? I don't know if you remember, Ruben, like, um, Zinia, we, um, all our family's based over in Malaysia. So when we used mm. to travel back often with our family, like family trips when we, when we were young, um, an interesting thing for me or a, th- a memory that would stand out is always kind of, you know, when you travel and you, you kind of watch foreign adverts. 
yeah and you just get you know like you can do that in europe and stuff like that and when we used to go to malaysia i don't know if you remember rubes like they would always have like i think it was more australians maybe like just white western people in advertisements i think even in like maybe mtv asia and stuff like it, it was just kind of this pedestal so like you wouldn't even get and i think if there were south asian people and i know that's still a small population within the demographic of malaysia but i think yeah to see a dark-skinned indian person on tv was a rarity and definitely within in advertising yeah mm. totally yeah so, so when what what time was that when when you started to travel like what what time period so, are, we, are we so we're looking at about 20 14 2015 so not that so long like, ago yeah not that long ago. it's like about almost five years ago i suppose yeah um yeah and and if um you know if that was your first defining moment and if we fast forward now to today what has that journey looked like in terms of how you're now positioning yourself or exploring colorism and so after that experience and i kind of went through asia and i saw that it wasn't kind of like you know, all the messages we've been told, it's culture, it's historic, it's um, it's from this or from that. I was like, actually, I'm going to go back and re-explore if this is the case. So I did. Mm. And um, I remember going back to Sydney and I was so angry that this little girl felt like this and that, that the ads were not changing and not being inclusive, that young people were feeling so, um, I guess, outcast from society because they weren't even visible. Because you can be what you can see. And if you're not even visible, how does yeah. it make you feel? So I went back and I wrote um, a research proposal. Um, and as I was going through the research papers, I realized there was such little writing on colorism, especially in the South Asian sphere. There was actually nothing, absolutely nothing. And that's because universities are kind of designed to make and sell skin bleach products which they sell as skin bleach products in asia and anti-aging products in the west so they're making so much money from these what, products uni sorry universities yes universities so the biggest universities like location wise that make skin bleach products which are sold as anti-aging products for european women and skin bleach products for asian women so it's literally the same product there's no difference in the in the um the ingredients list it's japan yeah. america and australia these are like the three countries that actually like within their university systems in like their bio, I guess, biological bio departments or pharmacy departments um, are creating these products. So wait a minute, Zinnia, are you saying what, what I'm hearing is that there's students that would go to these universities, learn this craft, understand it, and then the universities would nudge them towards being part of the force that creates these products to actually clearly promote colorism? internationally um, kind of but it's more so wow. at like the research level you know what i mean mm, so it's like a research right. institution so i guess it's even worse because they're adults who are well knowing what they're doing they're just <laughs> yeah. aware of yeah. ethics yeah. and they're still yeah. doing it for profit you know what i mean is yeah. there um anywhere medically where it's useful to have a skin bleaching product um i guess Almas, are you defending them <laughs> No, I, just, I think it's a good explanation. <laughs> no, I just wonder, like, why, aside, like, we know that uh, the bleaching industry is like a booming industry. Do you get what I mean? So we know that on a cosmetic yeah. level. And then I wonder in terms of the medical side, where I don't know if you have scarring or hyperpigmentation, oh, yeah. like things like that, is 
bleaching ever used in a non-cosmetic way? Well, I think to answer this question, you kind of have to go like a little bit further back as to like, you know, what was when beauty ideals were globalizing out of Europe in the early 1900s, what did they make beautiful? What did they make not beautiful? Because a lot of these ideas of medical treatments is also to do with disease mongering of melanin. So what I mean by that is like in the early 1900s, it was all about the light skin, light beauty mm. and all of and that kind of really didn't change because of um, physiognomy and the way beauty was perceived in casting and that kind of thing. I mean, I can go into that another day because that's like really big. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, so yeah. what ended up happening was um, because of those processes and the way beauty was perceived also at, on a racial hierarchy, anything dark, even pigmented in European women was called tainted. So tainted meant ugly, disgusting and unattractive. And you had women like Merle Oberon, who was part South Asian, who lied her whole career telling people that she was European. And that was because of the association to, of color to um, like a lower gradation of society, yes. of, of like Poor humanity on existence. scale. So the beauty yes. industry in that regard and the cosmetics and the medical industry has always kind of been very European based um, mm. and has kind of always pushed these ideals. So even the idea that hyperpigmentation is ugly when you look at it objectively away from the way we kind of see beauty, it's actually not. It's just really natural. But mm -hmm. because of the way beauty is constructed, it makes it like it's a negative thing. And so yeah. these products I... are kind of designed to remove that after mm. telling yeah. you it's a bad thing. Yeah, because it's always, I guess it's centered around whiteness, essentially, right? The decision makers in the advertising industries or beauty companies, that's kind of what they're centering it around. It's which, which I guess is changing. Also. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Aaron. No, no, no. no. Sorry? Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you have conditions like vitiligo, which um, these cream, like if people don't want the, the physical patches of colour to be so obvious, then there are certain creams that can be used to help kind of even out the skin tone in that way. So I guess it helps people um, self-esteem and well-being in that way. But uh, beyond that, these products, including the Vitilego products, are being sold to women in Asia without them knowing. And they end up actually getting Vitilego from using some of these products. Oh, so, no. So it's kind of like a negative feedback cycle as well. But to answer your question, Almas, yes, and no, I guess, mm. because no, it depends really on how you define beauty. Well. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, no, finish your thought. <laughs> I did. I, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I think uh, when you explained, when you made the connection between the ideals of um, when we're looking at like the medical industry and the cosmetics or beauty industry as well, I can see the link between the two. I can see that even if... Um, regardless of your skin tone, scarring or darker patches are just seen as a negative when actually it's quite a mm. natural response for our body to, you know, like scar when you have a spot or whatever. Um, it's like when you have like dark circles and again, if you okay. listen to the words that I'm using, it's like light yeah. and dark, right? Or bright and, and whatever. And so um, mm. I think 
that the body is designed to do natural things and as as much as we can we should allow it to happen yeah um, yeah and actually it's really funny you mentioned dark circles because this is kind of something i've been like really annoyed about because you know like when you look at these beautiful Mughal era paintings from the 1700s 1600s all of the like maidens and kings and princes all have I mean, it's not called a dark circle. It's called like a deep tear trough, right? But mm -hmm. the way the medical system's designed is it makes us think it's a defect. And sometimes you'll go mm. to like a doctor or something. They're like, oh, do you know you've got like a defect under your eye? It's a dark circle here. Why don't you yeah. use this product to like get rid of it? But actually it's so natural. Maybe we just need to reclaim it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think I the, the language is really important, isn't it? Like Almas, you, you said in the previous podcast i think maybe even black lives matter episode okay. we just was talking about the language and finding you know and and kind of yeah re readdressing how we kind of frame things and and the language yeah. that we're using around around these type of subjects yeah for sure i think um, is it Zinnia, sorry as you it's yeah. all right um zinian and now that you are uh, you know this was before when you were doing your research and now you model as well right um yes how do you balance your visibility as someone that isn't dark skin in a space where there's there could be room for a dark skin model or other other kinds of representation in the spaces that you're operating in I think that's a really interesting question. And I was talking about Aaron about this. So how I even got into the fashion industry was actually really quite random. And it was because I, when I was in Australia at the time, I was scouted by um, a London-based casting director. And so he gave me this card and I went into all the agencies at the time in Australia. And they all said to me, we only take Anglos or half Anglos. So because I was full Indian, they would not take me on the basis of my race. So in the very beginning, when I started modeling, it was all about trying to break this racial barrier of access and fashion. Um, I can't. I can't believe they actually said that. Is surely that I can. Is that illegal? Like for them I mean, to so you know, like fuck. Well, it wasn't illegal because their justification was um, we don't take Anglo's or half Anglo's because they don't work in this country. And they also said to me. Have you ever thought about working in your own country? I'd actually never been oh out there at that point. So, that was racist, I mean. so, oh my gosh, my skin's boiling. Just listen to this now. So, when you when you felt that, heard that, internalized that, did that really spur you on then to actually model? So it was less about maybe enjoying the pursuit of modeling <laughs> and more about okay watch i'm gonna change this shit up i'm like anger was that a driver for you well actually what ended up happening was i actually went the other way and i was just like you know what i'm just gonna forget this like you know like uh, i'm not gonna try and take blood out of the stone if they don't want me like in my own country i'm just not gonna talk like think about it again so hmm. when i came to london i actually got scouted again and one of the agents the agency that i was with was this huge network and they were one of the same networks in Australia that had actually rejected me. So it was IMG Australia, oh, and they wow. rejected me on the basis of my race. But IMG London had taken me on. And then I remember I was the first Indian model from Australia who wasn't part European, and I couldn't even get signed in my own country at the time. Wow. So that was like a really big issue. And it took me at least another six months 
for me to even get any traction in Australia to get signed, which was really, really disgusting, I thought. But to answer your question, Almas, um, I guess that was kind of like my journey into fashion. And it kind of really made me really upset that it was so restrictive and it was so exclusive. Mm. And that, you know, you can't just change your race. You know what I mean? You can't use like CRISPR and like put DNA in and change your race. So it was sort of like, like when I was able to access it, I also thought about how can I make more South Asian spaces? So what I ended up doing um, a year after I got signed and worked was I started like making these spaces. Um, I started like a production company, which I co-founded with my friend and what we started doing was giving South Asian creatives like photographers and makeup artists and I guess talent opportunities to do really high quality high fashion work I mean to date we've now done like three Vogue India covers and that sort of thing which was really cool and the aim of it was to kind of push South Asian talent that you wouldn't normally see of different colors light dark medium everything and we've also start, I've also started um, scouting South Asian models and putting them through these spaces. And I try to make sure they're so diverse in the way they look as well, because if I think if we don't give others within our community opportunities, I don't know who will, because maybe yeah. they still don't find us employable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I guess that's I'll... what I've been trying to do in those spaces. Yeah, I think that's so, um, yeah, that's so amazing that you've kind of actually taken those extra steps forward and and not just once you're in the kind of uh, in that space just stayed as talent you've kind of you're on both sides of the table which is important I wanted to kind of ask Almas and Ruben as well because I guess that's something that we're always talking about do you feel I definitely feel it's important to to be the decision makers um as well so kind of have ownership of the story and how a narrative is being told what, what do you guys think yeah I think um I think there's it's useful in being visible on one side for me I'll speak from my personal experience but it's useful for me to be visible on one side um I feel the benefits when especially when community reaches out and like people message me or um yeah I just it, my visibility is rooted in the fact that when I was growing up, I couldn't really see any South Asian women that were also queer, that were just kind of mm. just anyone I could relate to. So I was like, all right, cool. Let me just go and do that as well. But in my time in media and working in entertainment and broadcast, I've always been a producer or a booker as well, um, yeah. or a director, a film director. And in those positions are the ones where I feel my magic come most alive because I love being able to put people in places that they might not have otherwise been cast for. And that feels like um, active contribution. And I think there's yeah. that might be what you and uh, both you and Aaron are kind of touching on as well. Rubes, what do you think? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Aaron, man. Um, and I'd probably need more time to process it. But what I think where I'm landing now is that I think and this is regardless of me answering it or someone else answering it, I think the answer is really subjective and it comes down to that person's trauma and pain points, right? And and their lived experience. And for me, having, like, I I dipped out of the fashion industry quite early. Um, 
for reasons I've explained on other podcast episodes. And then I, I start to lean more into entertainment, but it's the same thing, right? Like I'm finding any vehicle created by the Western world. When I say the Western world, primarily white men, if we go all the way back, it's hard to be, it's hard to find people that look like us, right? So within entertainment, again, for me, I didn't see many people look or sound like me. And so I've had that experience repeated for so many years that I don't know. I hope the people inside these industries are able to make change, right? But I'm not putting my hope in that. And so for me, it's always been doing the underdog underdog work, sorry, on the outside, because I know I've got allies doing great work on the inside. So, and I know that's just not my world and it's too much of a trauma point for me to try to navigate without getting mad and just, you know what I mean? Throw my toys at the pram. So I'm just going to be on the outside creating new stories from the ground up wherever I can. Yeah. I I just think it's, it's so, I don't know. I just love the fact that Zinni, you've you've created a production company because it's it's maybe going slightly off the point, but I'm kind of working on a a pretty big project, uh, documentary project, which is based around, you know, uh, I guess diverse cultures and Ooh. I think originally without alluding it to too much because there's some contractual stuff but when we first pitched it to one just standard production company um the guy was like yeah I don't really get this I don't see this and um yeah when I took it back to the producer he was like yeah don't you know don't get disheartened by this no he's like a middle-aged white guy and he just wouldn't understand the nuances of so many of these different elements of culture that everyone that you know is involved and ingrained in the culture get so much so um the fact that now it's with a production company where the you know the two founders um are black and they get the culture and they get the nuances it's just another it's one one step less that you have to persuade right you just get it and i think that's really important that kind of that other level of um another barrier that you don't have to kind of go through and prove yourself or explain yourself so i do think over the coming years um having individuals in that part is going to be really really important because we're hopefully going to start seeing change in the industry new stories new projects kind of evolve and blossom i think yeah can i yeah just to build on your point aaron and also just to go back on something you were saying earlier on you were talking about the language we use is very important I agree that the language we use is very important. I agree that we need to see more um, of our people represented, like just in front facing jobs, you know, whether that's in fashion editorials, whether it's in film or live stage and whatnot. But I can't help but to think that we can see those and like we can see more role models, but unless the deeply embedded, embedded stories within our consciousness change, of what is possible, I think it will still be a bit more of an uphill battle. So I, I'm just a massive firm believer of really rewrite, not even rewriting narratives, because you can't really, because narratives are set, a lot of them are set. We can only write new stories, right? So by Aaron, you doing the internship, um, mm. and Zinnia, you setting up the production company that's bringing new people through to tell new mm. stories, and Almas with the filming and directing and some of my art, I think unless we're constantly creating new stories, it's going to be really hard to undo old conditioning. Mm. I feel yeah, anyway. Totally agree with you. I think there's so much we have to not only deconstruct, but also decolonize. Like, you know how I was saying with even 
hyperpigmentation. We're so used to it being ugly, but it's not. Yeah. And that, that's not, it doesn't come from us. We never created that ideal. Do you know what I mean? It's like it was created for us by others. So until we get into the spaces and start telling our stories our way and creating our own content, it's just going to continuously be written by others as stereotypes, as reductive formats um, yeah. And, yeah. and all of that. Do you not think, because on, on my side as well, as well as that, there's been, there ha for me, there had to be such a, a re-understanding and a relearning. So like even obviously with Black Lives Matter and stuff, I've, like over here in the UK, I realized that we just haven't been taught our history well, or may, maybe just like half of our history is just covered up. So I think in parallel as with kind of reshaping these stories and telling our stories, at the same time, it's important for us to go back and be like, where did this idea come from is that yeah. actually fucking true yeah and, and going back to the source and like yeah i've obviously been reading up a lot more about race and 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 indian kind of history and so yeah i i also feel that's that's equally as as powerful and, and important as well so so we don't kind of i don't know just so we have more facts and and we can just draw from more to tell those stories as well yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. It's, um, yeah, Zinnia, in a previous interview, you mentioned that your teacher said that if you work hard, you'll succeed, right? Um, in yeah. this vein of conversation, when we're yeah. thinking about like systemic colorism, colorism bias, like what, what we're, when we're talking about decolonizing constructs as well, what do you make of that advice now? Uh, work hard and you'll be able to succeed. Um, Hmm. Well, the thing about it is when it comes to systemic discrimination, particularly when it's related to colour, especially in places like fashion, like, for example, sometimes I'll put forward like a very, very dark skinned Indian girl and she'll get pushed back. Mm. So it doesn't matter how hard she works, she will never get that position because someone some way who's holding the power card are not going to mm. let that happen. So when it comes to things like that, I'm just, you know, I, I, I don't have an answer because how do you change something that's so ingrained yeah. in the industry yeah. you work with? Mm -hmm. I, I was going to ask another... That working oh. hard is something you have control over, whereas the system is something that we don't have control over, right? So actually, uh, like you, if you work hard... You might the success is is personal to each person, but if you work hard, at least you're constantly pushing against that force or just challenging it. Which seems like this that's what you're doing in all of your work in every single element. You're like, okay, well, how can I switch this, or how can I? I don't agree with that. Let me step out of it, or actually, I'm going to challenge these people this way. That's actually kind of how I got into um, pushing South Asian representation in Australia because of my experiences, obviously the racism and then it wasn't just the racism but when I actually worked in the industry I remember it was always like I was that token like exotic random chick in the corner or like you know the sexy, <laughs> yeah. mysterious and I was like that is not me you know what I mean like I, I don't wear a sari <laughs> mysterious on the token but... random chick exotic <laughs> oh it's so true <laughs> relatable <I was> just... <laughs> so I was just sort of like uh um okay and then um, what I realized was when I went back and did some stats that the, in the Australian fashion industry, in like the history of its entire magazines, they had never had a South Asian woman on the cover that wasn't like part white. So, you know, 700 plus issues. How mm. could you not? And even in the last like, you know, 
25 years, not a single South Asian person even being put through. And when you think about the population statistics of Australia, after Chinese people who are the largest minority, it's Indian people. So like in the UK, I think it's a little bit different. And in America, it's Latinas and then African-Americans, which is why the, the representation is kind of pushed in that way. But I think representation should also reflect the cultures um, that are represented in the population. So in Australia, there's literally no South Asians anywhere, You're not even on covers, models or anything like that. So what I did was I actually went, there was like this, you know, after the Vogue challenge and all of that, I kind of got really pissed off that, you know, Vogue Australia wasn't even representing us. And I was like, you know what, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to challenge them on this. So I did. I challenged the um, the editor on her lack of South Asian representation. And I I mean, I didn't think it would go very well, but it ended up going actually really well. <laughs> and then I thought, I was like, you know, I'm definitely blacklisted now. But I was like, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to fight for this because I felt so passionate. Um, but it ended up going really well. We started a dialogue and that dialogue was related to two things. So it was related to the lack of South Asians in the magazine, but also the lack of dark-skinned Indigenous Australians in the magazine as well. Mm, Because there are some really incredible artists in Australia who are just not getting any traction at all. And I just don't know if that's because of this historic whiteness or, you know, the white Australia policy and all that kind of stuff. Um, But anyway, the conversation began and we actually started to work together to try and, like, make it a little bit more diverse by, like, suggesting different artists and um, working together. So we're kind of, like started the ball rolling for the first South Asian issue ever made in that That's dope. for Vogue Australia. Wow. Well and done on that. really pushed that through, which is so important because, you know, people like me never saw anyone growing up. And I had to, like, look to, you know, these stereotypes, like Apu, you know what I mean? It's so reductive to my, like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need yeah. to listen Fuck. to our fancy dress episode. <laughs> I, yeah, have. Yeah. I loved it. I loved oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah fuck, you know? <laughs> fuck Apu, man. I'm sick of Apu, man. <laughs> Yeah, me too. And also, this is a question to to all three of you. Um, Oh, I work as a contributing editor there now. I forgot to say that. Who is what? Say say that again, sorry. Sorry, I I was like, sorry, I forgot to mention that because I also work as a contributing editor now to Vogue Australia, so I can actually try and really push through South Asian stuff now. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That's dope. Let's just hope the racist people... Don't listen to this podcast and be like, "Oh, yeah. really, darling?" No, but you know what, Ruben? I, this is this. I I kind of disagree. I di- I think this pod should be for as many listeners as possible because no, these course. are the conversations, right? No, yeah. I, I, I I hear you, Aaron, and I agree. This yeah. is the reason we're doing this. But I also understand that reality is reality, you know. And there are people that are very sly with their strategy and you're they'd never yeah, yeah, vocalize yeah. their their intentions yeah. but you see it playing out over a period of time we've all seen those people you know have um, you experienced anything like that yes all day long <laughs> but the thing is zinnia yeah you can't and i'll i'll say this with my chest and my soul and my heart <laughs> the answer is yes but and i felt it but i can't prove it and so even mm. opening that dialogue from the jump can be void but you know sometimes you just know what someone's doing right yeah yeah i've seen it loads of times like i've even seen it in other people's workplaces when i don't work there all i need to do is dip in and dip out and hear some stories and you just understand the truth at play and i've and like like almas i've i've facilitated a lot of 
like conferences around inclusion and diversity and just conversations. And it's the same stuff that's coming up over and over again. And you can see when things are tick boxed and when they're not, because yeah. I think ultimately the truth is communicated face to face when you're in a space with other human beings and it's communicated emotively. It's really not. It's not what people say or what they put out. It's, it's the energy they give out and the actions. And a lot of the micros, it's a lot. Truth is so Ooh, blatant yeah. in the micros. Um, I mean, that's another conversation. But the question I was going to ask all three of you is, mm. I think all of us, whether we would actually put this in our profiles, Zinni, I know you do. Uh, Almas, I know you do. And I'm just starting to do it as well. But we're all activists in a way with the work we're doing on this pod. I and, don't, and you know. Or you have, haven't you? I taken it out a long time ago. And Zinnia what? doesn't have it as well. So Ruby's oh, really? just throwing words <laughs> in everyone's mouth. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. Is that true, Zinnia? You don't have an activist anywhere? Uh, no, well, I'm not on, a, like, oh, on my Instagram or anything like that. Well, maybe yeah, no, maybe no. it was in a podcast I heard. Maybe someone else described you Oh, I did you see colorism activist on a poster. Yeah, colorism activist. Yeah, I did. But not self-described. And I do okay, not describe myself as an activist. That's interesting. That's another conversation. That is another active. episode. Yeah, okay. I say I'm active. <laughs> okay, could could we say that all all of us care about justice and and changing narratives for the progression of South Asians? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With that yeah. being said, so with that being all right, that's the framing of my question. Yeah. I'm like, where's Ruben like, going with this? Yeah. Just hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. I, I, I feel there's a lot of anger <laughs> underneath that's driving what is ultimately good work. Um, and it's and it's an emotion like anger is an emotion that I used to think I shouldn't have. But now I understand as I've got older that it's part of the human condition. And sometimes I need to honor it because that's a healthy thing to do. So my question is to you three, like with the anger you may feel from the industry and how the world is at times the shit show that it is like, how do you channel that and how do you deal with it? And are you able yeah. to make space for joy or is everyone just pissed off all the time? <laughs> no, well, I'll answer that. I don't, if I'm really, really honest, obviously there's frustration and anger, but I think my, just, well, you guys would, would know me anyway. I think I'm always led by celebration and curiosity. And I think I was speaking to Zinnia yesterday about this. It's like, when I don't see representation, I'm like, surely that's an area of newness that you can explore. So it's like not fucking boring. It's like if you're creative, you want to kind of explore uncharted territory and kind of do new stuff and innovate and try something new. So I'm like, I'm always led and that's my driver. It's like what hasn't been, what story hasn't been told, what's not been on t you know, TV or fashion or magazines. Um, I just think the other stuff is fucking boring. So that's why I usually kind of explore that. And then... Yeah, it's definitely linked to an element of frustration. Mm -hmm. But that Zinia? keeps me sane. That keeps me sane. I'll let um, Zinnia go first and then I'll go. <laughs> uh, well, I can um, answer. Okay. I just you, you, you um, wanted can go to be... first, actually. Okay. Okay. Oh, all right, all right. Um, <laughs> I want to be courteous, you know, to our guest. <laughs> oh, you're killing me, uh, Amas. Thanks. I'm catching the most jokes today by myself, just silently in the corner. <laughs> um, do you know what? Yeah, the pain and the anger is there. I think I am a very, uh, I'm an empath, so I deeply feel everything. Mm. Um, when I started 
well, when I just, when I experience injustice, I automatically feel fear, anger, and like deep upset and sadness. Um, a lot of the time I'm quite introverted. So I'm just by myself. And that's when I'm feeling all of those things. And then the way that I output and what everyone else sees on my website or the projects that I do and the people I choose to work with and stuff is that process of turning all of that energy into something that is productive, engaging, light, but still like rooted in um, active behavior, which is what I was saying. Um, mm. And for me, like joy and anger cradle each other all the time. Um, it makes me appreciate everything so much more because yeah. like I feel or I see things that just shouldn't happen, right? And I'm just like, no, no, no. So any moment that there is joy, I I leap I leap at it. That's why whenever Ruben says anything like jokes, I'm there. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are there. Yeah. What about you, Zinia? Um it's a very interesting question because I think anger and injustice definitely drive me to do this kind of work but at the same time as well like my background I mean I was talking to Aaron about this yesterday like so I'm a natural introvert and I used to have social phobia which still comes out every now and then so even for me to like do a single bit of like advocacy it takes like mm. so much energy out of me so like for me to do it, it's not like my natural state but it's I'm like compelled to do it because I just want the world to be a better place for the next generation like I don't want people to experience what I experience and I don't think anyone should have to die because of their skin color as well when it comes to colorism so it's kind of like I guess injustice that drives me and I just I'm very optimistic and I love equality and I just would love that these kind of arbitrary barriers that don't let us access certain opportunities to not exist anymore and I think that's that's it Jeez. Bars. Ru Ruben, I had so to jump. I kind of wanted because I'm a little bit, as you guys know, aware of time. Yeah. Um, um, this is sorry, Zinnia, this is my thing. They cuss me for always being very mindful of time. Um, yeah. I wanted to go back a little bit and talk about um, when you're working with the production company and casting, because um, for me recently and, and i guess for everyone right so I've, I've got a project coming up and uh i was pushing a model of color and i i felt from a creative perspective as well the visuals and stuff it, it just worked and the client kind of came back and was like oh i think this other model works better now they didn't explicitly say it was color and they gave some reasons I, I can't go into it too specifically because i don't want to call out the client because mm. i don't actually think it was racially based no, yeah. but my question is how do you are there any tools that you could use to kind of maybe get more clarity on that because for me it's still really gray right like I, there's there's yeah it's hard to navigate especially through email like they could kind of craft a reply mm. Um, and and to figure out the intent because maybe maybe it's totally not racial or race based. Um, so how do you know us as creatives, as a director, as a producer, when we're trying to push push that and make it you know push our narratives a bit more? How do you know when to call it out, or are there any red flags or or things that we can kind of push back on to to get more information? <laughs> 
I think it's a very good question because I think I agree with you. I think it's a great area because sometimes, for example, when it comes to like very dark skin Indian models, like I'll be pushing her, pushing her, pushing her, and they'll just be like, no, we don't want her. And they won't give you an answer why. And yeah. Like, you know, put themselves. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But sometimes what you notice, you, you, you notice a trend. Well, I do anyway. I don't know if you've kind of seen this where, especially if it's like you're working with the European teams or European creative directors, um, yeah. they have an idea of what Indian beauty already looks like. So yes. what they kind of select for instead of, um, you know, like features that you might see when you go to South Asia or Malaysia, like um, different features on the faces, like um, a dorsal hump or deep tear troughs and things like that. They actually prefer the features that are more European. So what ends up happening is I will, I personally noticed this just because I kind of like analyzed it a little bit is yeah. that there's a, there's a big preference in the industry for half white South Asians, because that's kind of what they're familiar to, with, more familiar with in terms of beauty. Yeah. I do. And they don't yeah, have the pigmentation or the body hair and stuff, so it's more I don't know accessible to them. But to us, it's, it's like a it's like a sellout in a way, though, right? Like it's like yeah, okay, but as long as it's still kind of in our comfort zone, yeah, we'll do just yes. enough. Yes, yes, I agree. And I remember in Australia, I was like, um, I was going to enter like one of these pageants back in the day. And they told me I had to dye my hair blonde and wear green contacts so I could be universally accepted. Fuck off. So, I mean, that's kind of what drives my anger as well in this. I'm just like, why do I need to, like, change my race to be acceptable? Like, you know, like, visually change my race in order to be accessible. So it was about, like, I don't know, being... So I feel like that that's still kind of a thing in our industry. I mean, I'm finding it a bit hard to articulate, but um, it's still a big problem because what you notice right now when you look at, I mean, if you go to models.com, models.com is this website where they list all the models and they've got like different categories, like supers, new supers, hot list, top 100, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of like the main hierarchy people in the fashion industry go to, to, mm. to rank and rate models. And what you see on these lists is there's no South Asians and the only South Asians are all part white and they're only like the, the top sexiest lists. And you've got like Kelly Gale and Shanina Sheikh and they're quite visually part European. Do you know what I mean? So they mm. don't look fully ethnically Indian. They don't have those ethnic hyperpigmentation or the ethnic hips or, you know, there's yeah. certain features that are being completely erased from this industry, which is yeah it's not acceptable to be honest yeah yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. and i think that's bodies and not use that yeah and i think that's why i guess we're all doing what we're doing and we need to continue and i think yeah what you're doing as well is is dope sorry yeah or ruben do you know what maybe this is really reductive and and i'm just simplifying things just for my own sanity (laughs) right but what i see industries as i see it as like I see it as someone has gone and built a house and then they've invited their friends to the house and they have their rules and their ideas Mm. of what happens in their house. And then someone comes and knocks on the house and say, can I, can I come in this house and do my thing? And they say, no, this is, we've created this. This is our thing. Mm. (laughs) And we're like, no, no, no. But you, you have to accept me and what we do over there in that field. And they're like, no. And, and, And I know it sounds so reductive, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, if, people don't want to accept us into their house 
Yeah. The only option is... Build another yard. Build another <laughs> yard. And it sounds so simple. I know it's so much heavy lifting, but I think as a long t- long-term solution, it's, it's definitely part of the solution, you know? Because going into yeah. someone's house and trying to get them to accept... I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's reductive, but it comes from a point of frustration from me. Yeah, t- Tyler Perry talks about that all the time, doesn't he? Well, like, in relation to, you know, film and media within african-american yeah. society and the states yeah um, and i know it's a question about distribution and power and control yeah. who's controlling narrative and whatnot so i know it's deeply complex but if i was to simplify it, it would be that um, anyway sorry aaron go on yeah no, no 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 i was no i was agreeing um i was just saying we're coming up to like 50 oh so, man this has gone really quick as well and i've got so many talking points in here just to let you know w- we've I feel also like I heard enough from alma <laughs> I know oh, she's been no. proper listening today, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been listening a lot. Um, I don't know what to say now. I'm like, oh, what can I say? <laughs> um, <laughs> have you, know you had what? experiences? Have I had like experiences in the industry which kind of make you think twice or wish things had changed? Oh, oh come on, <laughs> Ruben. <laughs> <laughs> I think like the better question is like, when do those experiences not occur? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean oh my um, God. Okay, we can ask that. <laughs> <laughs> come on, um, let's go. <laughs> we live in what were the positive and um, positive. Um. Do you know what? I think that get out, get out out of the sunken place. Seriously. Um, You know what? I think for the majority of my career, a positive is that actually a lot of my work has been independent by that. I mean, Mm. no one has wanted to hire me, but actually in, um, you know, eight years on from that, um, I feel like I have had a real blessing in being able to, with all of the free time and being able to self-commission my own projects. And Mm -hmm. that literally means calling up someone to say, hey, can you help me create this? It means that I've actually had a lot of space to um, create and build and develop my identity. And that's as a um, creative person, that's as a director, that's also as a South Asian woman. I've had time to be able to just think, okay, who am I? There's been times when I have been in institutions or establishments and I have seen a madness, I've heard a madness. Mm. Um, My personality is to call it out and I'm working on that a little bit more, which is where you're hearing (laughs) this. The listening part of me coming in instead of like reacting and responding all the time um mm. but that's taken a long time because actually like i i can't watch injustice happen and i can't yeah. watch um just bullshit happen basically and so what i tend to do is observe more now and um take a back seat to to build on a bigger step rather than being occupied by the smaller steps you know what i mean like i'm thinking okay well actually if i make this career move here or if i am visible in this space what does that mean for my community um at the moment so you're cal- calculating a bit more are you kind of strategizing a little bit definitely. more Alice? you know a lot of my <laughs> own questions and frustrations like come back in like okay well you can talk about this stuff but what are you doing i'm always like <laughs> do because now luckily we have a lot of south asian people that have got up to speed with anti-blackness or colorism or Mm. racism so great Mm. everyone else can do that talking now 
So while everyone's talking about it, I'm thinking, okay, well, what? how does your understanding and your knowledge convert into money? How does it convert into jobs? How does it convert into actually, you know, you, um, Ruben, you were talking about building a new yard, yeah? So mm. how do we actually contribute to the alternative economy? Yeah. And that is mm. lifelong work that is not going to, it's not going to actually, we probably won't see the fruits of it. Our children or grandchildren or great grandchildren might, right? But yeah. that's the conversation in my head that I'm, that I've been thinking about a lot when it comes to how I deal with it. It's really sad. And sometimes I just feel like, you know, when you're like, I didn't ask to be here, you know, <laughs> like, you're just like, man, like, this is so overwhelming. And yeah. when you really understand the world, you're like, where do we even start? So as you were talking about um, modeling, I was thinking, oh, that's, but that's the industry. People are looking for androgynous people that can can wear clothes. This is, again, very reductive, but it's people that <laughs> anyone, so you can see yourself in the clothes no matter what right but with that mentality people are actually doing the opposite because what we lack in this world is variety and what we lack in and what we fail to see or maybe people did realize it but we need to see ourselves in order to believe where that's how our brains tend to work um in the current climate we need to see it to believe it and so now it means visibility is now a tool but unfortunately well we didn't we didn't visibility shouldn't have to be at all but it is mm. um anyway as you can see i've been thinking loads in this <laughs> in this episode and you know like i'll continue to think about it and you've given me so much food for thought as well i've got like ruben i've got tons of questions and so many strands um but it's really amazing to see that you know you've you've been applying yourself and you're con you're constantly trying to grow and learn learning is such a massive thing you come from a space of learning so that's just going to be in you know excuse the pun but in your dna do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah um, and i think that's my take home all the time is almas how can you listen more and how can you learn more because you already know what you want to say do you know what i mean mm. like how can i learn from you in this conversation it's brilliant that's dope Elmas. thank you um thank you for sharing that that was yeah, that yeah. Was and Really super insightful uh yeah. zinia I, we, I do have I, a question for all, all of you before i like i i guess go we're gonna you know how like for so long there hasn't been so many spaces or opportunities for not just south asian creatives but visibility in i guess the entire i'm talking more fashion media and the music kind of scene do you mm. think the industry is receptive to change or do you think it's just certain parts of the industry that is not receptive to change oh what's your experiences then can i can i start with my thoughts do there it. go i think the industry now since the digital revolution right the industry is forever malleable and is oh I don't know who has more power here, whether it's the people or the machine. I'm, I'm never, I sway between both of those. But what I do know is that con like content creation has been democratized by digital platforms. And therefore the industry itself has been widened. What we consider the industry is widened. The industry, let's say for example, media would be limited to TV, radio, 
um, and publishing, whereas now it's social media, which is so by us publishing something, we are actually within the industry and a part of the industry and are shaping the industry. So with that in mind, the positive and, and hopeful part of me says it has to be open to change because by its very nature, it is changing every microsecond. So that's positive. Um, but then then the worry is that the intelligent people at the top who control some of the biggest outlets are learning and constantly making counter moves to stay stay in control. That's a messy yeah. answer, but that's it's overly hope. It's more hopeful than it is negative. I think in my soul. Yeah. I would say it may sound a bit cold, but I would say as long as the industry can see a way to to monetize it, then anything is game. Wow. So and yeah. I don't necessarily my, the way the the way I am geared. I don't necessarily think that's you. You can look at it from different points of view, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think if you have people that have ethics and morals and and are driving driven to to create change like we are in in a specific way, then yeah, just learn those rules and then figure out how to push. Uh, hopefully a hopeful more positive agenda so and that's what i'm doing that's why i'm always interested in uh now like i'm kind of working on a bigger project that we're pitching to all the the huge major studios and like at the moment i'm going through understanding how um ip is you know royalties ip um and i'm just like ah fuck okay these are all the cogs in the back and instead of getting scared, I'm like, this is sick. Like, okay, cool. Now, how can I? Because I think I'm always going to have the same intent and drivers for my projects on a creative side. And now it's like, okay, this is just another tool to try to be more effective with how I can get those stories out. That's just my, my point of view. I think you both have really good points um, to add on. So like not to displace, but to add on to yours, I think that in terms of our human nature, we what do we like to do we are very comfortable with the same and we feel uncomfortable with change mm. but humans are designed to adapt and that gives me hope yeah that's, that's beautiful so I've got one more okay. thing I want to throw in the in the mixing pot here Zina if you don't mind yeah, I, yeah. I, I think representation is great but I also think we need to have l more South Asian thought leaders that are challenging status quo and they need to be more visible. They don't need to be on screen or, or in, in magazines, but just thought leaders getting ideas out and, and helping change consciousness is mm. is so fucking key, man. 100%. I think that's, Zid. yeah, definitely where, yeah, yes. No, 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 go for it, go for it, <laughs> No, I, I was just completely agreeing with everything you had, and I liked how, um, you know, there's there's no one single answer for this because it might it's be so layered. at one point and then mm. <laughs> other points that might not fit. Okay, I'll let you speak, Aaron. Yeah, no, I was just saying it's so la layered, and I think that the healthy thing is that there are people attacking it from all angles and, and that's, that's it probably that's, that's it and human way. nature is that is us where there's we have 50 things going on inside of us right now mm. and and you have if you always take it down to the micro level and then boost it back up to the macro that's how we function 
Like you just look at a person or think about like a playground scenario and then ba- like take it down to like our inner child's interacting, your inner children, sorry. You can then find like the formula or metaphor for any scenario in the world. Like we all operate the same as a unit and as individually as well. Our nature, oh, are quite, nature are you're just similar. opening you're opening more threads in my mind yeah. while we're just, this is crazy because well. I wanted to now ask Zinnia about the relevance yeah. of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the 20th century but let's I've not do that I've written a paper that. on that mate it's a, oh, it's a lot. we need to get it's into it again lot. soon you know <laughs> Zinnia it's been wonderful to get to know you I'm so excited to have a new friend <laughs> thank you it's so amazing to meet all of you and it's so great to get all your insights like I think it was it's really amazing to like really see how your journeys have kind of shaped your views on mm. the way you think not just south asian but representation and visibility will yeah. be going in the future and i 100 percent agree with you on the thought leaders ruben because yeah. i think without thought leaders what's the like we'll just have like 2d images you know what i mean yeah but exactly we need visionaries exactly yeah, just we, human we mannequins to- everywhere exactly <laughs> change challenge and make people evolve the way they think and 100. until that happens it's just going to be like this is replaced by whatever's new isn't it it's just going to be yeah. like south asia yeah. today i don't know like purple people tomorrow or like green people the next day you yeah. know what i mean so, yeah yeah it's like new patterns just disguised yeah, as yeah as, as some breakthrough but it's not you look at it it's actually yeah. another yeah it's just the same pattern again yeah exactly but yeah thank you zinnia so much honestly for your curiosity and and bringing your your insights and your wisdom to the show it's been so good and as per usual this is the tip of the iceberg with four minds in a room passionate about the same subject and maybe in the future we can have you back on the pod or maybe when we do something live it'll be nice to have you involved or at least come down but yeah just a massive thank you thank you so much i think it'd be awesome Thank you. Um, thank you all. And thank you for everything that you do as well in this industry, because I think if you didn't pave the way for visibility for, you know, the new generation like, and the generation coming up like after me, like we would have way less spaces, you know what I mean? To kind mm. of even see and access. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really that, kind. That's so nice to hear. Thank you. We're out here fighting from different positions and Please we'll continue to do fighting. so. Three megaphones. That yes. is it. Um, Zinnia, where can we, as we wrap, where can you kind of just tell us where uh, people can find your work, what you do um, across all the different um, different projects that you have going on? Um, well, I don't have all of my projects like listed online yet just because sometimes I like to be a little, uh, I don't know, it's that introvert. Low key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, it's, not, it's not the right time. Yet. But you can find me um, on like social media, Zinia Kuma. Um, okay. How do we spell uh, that? Z I N I A Kuma, K U M A R. And I've got like a website, ziniakuma.com. Um, yeah. So that's basically my stuff. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you again. Thank you for your time. I think we should definitely all link up when uh, we're out of this Boris bubble of six. Yeah. Um, sometime yeah, soon. Yeah, I'd love to meet you all in person. I think it'd be like very, very nice and some very insightful. No, it will be a whole. <laughs> yeah, it will be such a wholesome jam, wouldn't it? Let's yeah, do it. Definitely. Let's do it.
Okay, groups. I'm about to press stop right now. <laughs> Peace out, listeners. See ya. Bye. What is this behavior? So that wraps up another episode. For me personally, that was dope. I really enjoyed um, just chopping it up and getting educated, man, on, on, on my blind spots. Uh, I thought it was a really important episode. For us, this has actually been the 20th episode. So we just wanted to say thank you for everyone that has supported the podcast in, in all shapes and shapes and sizes, in all forms even. Um, whether you guys have been following the pod on social or it's word of mouth or actually listening and um, uh, following the journey from the beginning. It's been an amazing journey. Um, timely because we kind of launched the pod during the first lockdown well here in the uk um and as i'm recording this outro it's the second lockdown or just the beginning of the second lockdown so um yeah thank you for the support um we think or we hope this this podcast has has inspired people to to change and, and to take action um and also just to comfort you guys um you know we, we don't know how long the second lockdown is going to be so we hope you guys enjoy the content that we put out um, and stick with us we're hoping to just continuously grow and improve um, and connect with all you guys so you can follow us as always um, on the podcast but also on instagram which is what is this behavior podcast you can follow us on twitter um, which is witb underscore podcast um, and get in touch we want connection peace what is this behavior do you want it you're dying for it